persecuted priest reflects upon Fatima, an evening discussion with Father James Maudsley, covering many topics of interest, such as the crisis in the church, the proper role of the bishop, discerning a vocation, the importance of reparation, and how, in the face of persecution, one maintains a fighting spirit and remains at peace in Christ. Praise be Jesus and Mary. I'm David Rodriguez with the Fatima Center, welcoming you, our video audience, and also our live audiences here, to a special presentation by the Fatima Center. I am joined by Father James Maudsley. Father, thank you for coming. Thank you. Before we get started, if you would lead us in a small prayer. Sure. The angels' prayer from Fatima would be appropriate, huh? So, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Most Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, I adore thee profoundly. I offer thee the most precious body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, present in all the tabernacles of the world, in reparation for the outrages, sacrileges, and indifferences whereby he is offended. And through the infinite merits of his most sacred heart and the immaculate heart of Mary, I beg of thee the conversion of poor sinners. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, Father, let's dive right in. Since this is the prayer you picked, you know, I love that prayer. And one of the things I love about that prayer so much, I try to pray, especially at Mass, at the moment of elevation, when the priest is holding up the chalice, the precious blood of our Lord. I will silently offer all that prayer. I think that's a really appropriate moment because that prayer, to me, is, is very connected with the Holy Sacrifice of Mass. Mm-hmm. It's obviously very Eucharistic. And so the angel's teaching us something about that. And you also kind of came onto the scene. In fact, some people have been calling the Fatima Center. Who, who is this priest? We've never heard from him before. Part of that is because you're overseas. But certainly with this new document by Francis, that attacked the traditional Roman right of the Catholic Church that's been around for 2,000 years, you had to speak up on that. So maybe just if there's a connection between the prayer, between Tradiciones Custodes, and between some of the struggle you've been encountering lately. Okay. Um, God obviously knows everything that's happening, and he's had a long-term plan for this. In the chaos in the world today, both secular and in the church, we might be thinking, what do we do, what do we do? God told us a long time ago, and Our Lady told us more than a hundred years ago. And with these prayers, you know, the first prayer that the angel taught the children, My God, I believe, I adore, I hope, and I love thee. I ask pardon for those who do not believe, and do not adore, do not hope, and do not love thee. And in the second prayer, there's a real connection between them. It starts, Most Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. That's what we believe. I adore thee profoundly. That's what we adore. The next, I hope, we see that in talking about the conversion of poor sinners in the reparation for all these scandals and outrages. We think it's bad now. It is bad, but the angel taught us and Our Lady showed us it's coming, so we shouldn't be surprised. That's where we can have hope because heaven has all this totally under control. The enemies of God serve God, whether they want to or not. Traditional custodians is serving God right now, even though it is a disgraceful betrayal of the mission of the church, an attack on what is most holy, it will serve God's purpose. Because there's so many people finding out now about tradition. They're already confused and hurt by this Pope. And so when he attacks something so viciously, they think, well, it must be something good. 
And so they're coming to discover tradition. And the, the fourth part of the first prayer, I love thee. So we see that in the whole of the second. Through whatever darkness there is here, the victory of Our Lady's Immaculate Heart and Jesus' Sacred Heart is assured. And for this we love them. There's a lot more specific to say about Traditionis Custodis. Um, we'll probably get onto it. Sure, but well. just in general, it, it shouldn't phase us. Um, so sure, I mean, I'll say a couple of things. One is just that as I picked you up from the airport today and we were talking, we immediately got into reparation mm-hmm. and how necessary reparation is as part of the message of Fatima, as part of even the consecration of Russia as an act of reparation. And of course, this prayer to me is, is, is a prayer of reparation. Yeah. So any thoughts you have there on reparation, what it is, why it's so important, why God is calling us Catholics to do reparation for what? What is reparation? Why, why do we need to do it? And how do we do it? Right. Again, um, both of those prayers, especially the second more explicitly, are calling us to pay attention to the Blessed Trinity and the Blessed Sacrament and the sacrifice. These are the highest realities there are in heaven and on earth. And the reparation is a proof that you have faith. Otherwise, why would you do it? It's a proof that you have love. Otherwise, why would you do it? Why would you willingly take on an inconvenience or suffering except for love? And you wouldn't do it if you didn't believe. So those who make an act of reparation, the victory of Our Lady is happening in your heart right then. The victory of Our Lord is happening in your soul. We don't see it necessarily in the world because there's so much chaos and trouble. But your faith has overcome the world. That was the gospel yesterday on Low Sunday. There is no reason to make reparation if you are godless, if you're faithless. It doesn't make sense to voluntarily take on perhaps an unknown suffering that nobody else knows about, that only God can know about, to suffer some blow from circumstances of life, but willingly just to say, God, I offer this, unite it with the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. You can't do that unless you have faith and charity. And yet, you know, charity is why we exist, to attain to charity. So the reparation that Our Lady is asking for, it's a simple thing, which little Jacinta and Francesco and Lucia did it as 8, 9, 10, 11 year olds. They did it, yeah? It's not out of reach of any of us. We sometimes might wonder what, I was speaking to you earlier, what can we do? What am I supposed to be doing right now? How can we solve these massive problems in the world? Someone else is telling me doesn't bother watching the news because we don't know if it's true or not. We certainly know it's missing out, the most important truths. But it's there to mislead and depress and brainwash us, to, to get control in us. But we, we don't necessarily need to address all the big problems. If nine-year-olds and ten-year-olds can please God, then we're already equipped to do the same through reparation. The suffering, uh, if I can touch on that, as well as another thing that at least I've seen in you, if you could share that, you are talking about suffering is needed and the chaos in the world. And as I've talked to you today and got to know you, one of the things that did impress me is you do exude, and I'm grateful for it, a certain level of peace, Father. Um, so thank you for that. Because amidst all this chaos, sometimes we're not very peaceful. And even if you're speaking here with some of these things, I, I can kind of see that. I can see some of the peace. So if there's any insights you can give us to that, especially uh, in the light of the suffering. Because I know you're no stranger to suffering. 
yes, yeah, some of it might be hidden, some of it might be small, but some of it also might be a little more overt. You know, you're suffering right now, I think, uh, I would say some certainly unjust persecution, some difficulties because you're trying to stand up for the truth. You're trying to stand up for Christ and His church, the Holy Sacrifice of Mass. Quite frankly, you're standing up for me and you're standing up for the faithful, but you're suffering for it. So if you could address even maybe just a little bit of the suffering or why you're willing to endure that suffering and how you maintain the peace. Um, the source of peace in the world is the Blessed Sacrament, is the Holy Eucharist, because it's perfect, the highest reality transcending everything created, and he's here with us in our tabernacles, coming to us in Holy Communion. And it's the highest ordering principle for everything. So if we think the world is descending into chaos, if you have a relationship with the Blessed Sacrament, then you are bringing peace into the world. Because you can only come to Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament if you start sorting your life out. Through, for example, confession once a month or whatever it has to be. And by going to confession every month, you will learn what your biggest disorders are that you need to ask for the graces to correct. And by doing that, Jesus is reaching right into the souls of anyone who wants to come to us, giving us all the help and grace we need to overcome those sins. And therefore, you're bringing order into the world. Someone was telling me yesterday that the state of the world kind of can get him down a bit, you know. Um, but understandable. Right there with you. <laughs> but that's only because we forget the Blessed Sacrament. You can't be thinking of the Blessed Sacrament and be down about the state of the world. You can't do it at the same time. You can only think, wow, the fullness of reality, the incarnate Son of God in His body and blood and His soul and His divinity is here substantially, really, truly present and He wants to give Himself to us. How can we be down about the world then? Yeah. Or at least if the, we do get down about the world because we're in it, it should make us flee to the tabernacles to come to Mass as the, the solution. And that's again how the enemies of God serve Him. The attacks on tradition are just making people realize more deeply perhaps than before how precious it is, how necessary it is, and how they're willing to sacrifice so much for it. For suffering, basically, I've messed up big time in my life several times, been in a terrible situation, and then seeing later how God turns it to the good, including, um, well, I don't know what details to give, but I, th I think that's the piece so that now um, being suspended from the priesthood is pretty terrible. Someone said, is it like freedom because you can go where you like now? It's not freedom. Freedom is when you voluntarily assent to submit yourself to the hierarchy of the church and they give you a mission for Christ. That's freedom. But when, because of this COVID manipulation, the church, the Pope, the bishops start shutting down churches and telling us not to give the sacraments. And then a superior is telling us to turn people away from church. Then the freedom's been taken away. So I'm no worse off being suspended than when basically for a, I was kicked out of one apostolate because I gave Holy Communion on the tongue. That's the reason the Cardinal said we can't give Holy Communion on the tongue. He's wrong. That's illegal. That's against canon law. 
So we have to continue as priests and do what we're ordained to do, is give the sacraments. So I got kicked out of there, five months in exile without ministry. Then another apostolate where I was kicked out because there were complaints that there were too many people in the church for the Easter Triduum. Like, that's our job. I really, it's not, that's our job. It's what we're ordained for. This, what Canon Law says about the bishop, Canon 387, since the bishop is the principal dispenser of the mysteries of God, he is to endeavor constantly that the Christian faithful entrusted to his care grow in grace through the celebration of the sacraments and that they understand and live the Paschal mystery. How can we understand and live the Paschal mystery if they close the churches for the Triduum? Or if in Vienna they say only six people can come to it? They are, co- they are going against the mission of the church given by Christ, which means it's totally illegal. You don't need to be a canon lawyer. You can go to the deepest principles of law, of where authority comes from, is to fulfill the mission that's given to you. And when God gives the mission, then the bishops are not allowed to surrender or hinder that mission. So we, we, we carry on with it. So for being, I got pulled out of there because they said there's too many people in the church and then eight months I was not allowed to say any public masses because I refused to wear a mask to distribute Holy Communion. I think it disfigures the liturgy, it's dehumanizing, it contradicts what's supposed to be happening in the mass which is all about communication. The Blessed Trinity is perfect communication of persons. We communicate through our faces. That has to be happening in the liturgy. Um, It's not that we're looking at each other but we don't want to make a countersign to it by covering... People are free to wear a mask if they think it's good. But the idea of forcing people, of saying you can't enter this church if you don't wear it, is um, completely unjustifiable, I think. So having lost the chance to do ministry anyway, that's when I wrote to my superiors and said, I'm going to leave, and I realized I'll be suspended. But I've, I've not lost my ministry because I walked away. I'd lost it already. But God can use anything in any grim situation. Any wretched person in any wretched situation, he can still use you for his purpose. So I'm not, I guess I'm peaceful because I'm not um, phased. Satan's lost. Yeah. He's lost. He's, he's the biggest loser there is. I mean, what a bad decision you can possibly make to go up against God. We have nothing to be afraid of. Literally nothing. Nothing on earth. Yeah. And nothing beneath the earth. Only afraid of the, the one who will judge us. Um, I think I've, I've missed part of the question. No, I mean, I think you kind of got it, but even then, I mean, we'll just keep going, right, to see where, because some of the things you've said have now prompted me to ask a number of things. A couple of things you touched on is authority. So I think right now, as, as Catholics, we certainly want to be obedient, and authority is very important, and we know that's true, right? You want to have this obedient heart to love God and to obey Him, but we certainly seem to have a very big crisis of authority in the church. Mm-hmm. So we sort of have to understand authority, understand maybe the role that God is giving authority in the church to make sense of this crisis, because I'm certainly of the opinion that this is the greatest crisis we've ever faced. You know, people will say, I, I don't mind using the superlative right now that the church has faced many crises throughout the world, yes, but this one is by far and away the worst one. Even the Aryan crisis of the fourth century pales in comparison to it. And even besides the point, I mean, my, my brother uses a great example. He says, you know, if, if your house is on fire... And you say, my house is on fire. And people say, well, it doesn't matter. Houses are always on fire. What are you worried about? And you're like, well, that's ridiculous. My house is on fire. I need to do something about it. So if we're in this crisis in the church, yeah. and if we have this crisis in authority, how are we to understand it? Because I guess I would say there's, there's, some, there's one, we might call them extremes, that say, well, that's it. Forget authority. I'm, I'm running my own show. 
and that can lead down a bad path, I think, because then you're, let's say, not being obedient. You have another side that can say, look, I just got to put my head in the sand and obey blindly and do whatever they tell me because I got to be obedient. Are those good solutions or those not? It doesn't seem like that's what you've taken. Yeah. So every single virtue can have excess or a defect. Um, if your generosity is a virtue, if the defect of generosity is when you're stingy, you won't give any money away. An excess of generosity is when you heedlessly hose money around to bad causes or whatever. So faith, uh, obedience has a defect and an excess. Defect is disobedience, but an excess is when you obey instructions and orders which the person giving that doesn't have the authority to give. It's either outside their competence or they don't have that authority anyway. The only virtue that has no excess is charity, love. You can never love too much. But obedience is obvious. The defect is disobedience. But it doesn't seem to be obvious that the excess of it is obeying illegitimate orders. So Dr. Peter Kwasniewski has written this wonderful book, True Obedience in the Church, and he really gives great theological, historical, moral arguments to show what our obedience is to. And the blind <laughs> obedience is just an abnegation not only of responsibility but our humanity. Yeah? We're given a mind to understand and a will to choose. Um, Going off on your own mission is also no solution. Because Jesus said, without me you can do nothing. Yeah, he is the vine, we are the branches. It, everything has to come from God through his incarnate Son. It's just in the Trinity, there's this hierarchy, Father, Son, Spirit. So everything that comes into creation is from God through his Son. And in the church, Christ is the head of the church, the mission of Every cleric um, and the mission of the laity is through the hierarchy, even through the Pope, through the bishops. But they are at a point in a long, long tradition, which goes back to Jesus sending his apostles on this mission. Almost every chapter of the Gospel of St. John talks about being sent. Either Jesus is sending apostles or the Holy Spirit is being sent into the world. So you can't just set up your own shop, your own mission, as the Protestants do. Um, personally, I think that when the hierarchy I find are trying to hinder that mission won't send priests on it, um, then the solution is not to set up independently, but to challenge them and to say that they're failing. They're failing in what they were consecrated for, ordained for. Um, and that's not to say it as their enemy, but to say, please, as you might say to a father, um, Father, you have, you have to help us, you have to look after us, you have to defend us, you have to feed us, you have to provide for us, you have to discipline us. Please do it, or the family will fall apart. And that's what the bishops need to hear from us, and the Pope needs to hear from it. Because if you don't do what you're meant to do, you'll definitely go and do what you're not meant to do. And so we see the Pope reaching out to Lutherans, and then Muslims, as if God willed Islam, which is an error, um, reaching out to lesbians and homosexuals in a way that's not to say repent of your sin and come to the sacraments, but to say that they're acceptable as they are for the sacraments, which they're not. Each, every one of us has to repent our sin before we come to communion through confession. And then with Pachamama, he's bringing 
Pachamama into St. Peter's and a bowl of earth offered to demons on the altar in St. Peter's, he's basically reaching out to everybody except tradition, which he's trying to destroy. And what's going on there? It has nothing to do with tolerance and openness. Because if you're tolerant and open to everything that man can come up with, every error and heresy and religion man can invent, that you're trying to destroy the tradition that goes back to the apostles and Jesus Christ, uh, then that's not tolerance. That's enmity with God. And we can't, can't flourish without the Pope, without the bishops. So we need to make this noise like a baby crying to say, um, do your job. See, the mother looks after the baby, right? The mother church needs to look after us. But what do you do? I mean, well, a couple of things. One is, one, how do you identify those? I think that's the common question we all might have, right? I mean, there's all these different, let's say, situations, things happening. How does one know when, especially if you're maybe, you know, let's just say the ordinary Joe Pew in the Catholic Pew, and, and you're just kind of trying to go to your job and, and keep your family, protect them, raise them well, get food on the table. And so then how do you know when this obedience is wrong, when the authority has gone astray? And then even, as you say, we, we are to cry out to them, but what does one do also when one is crying out to them and you're not getting responses and the situation continues to worsen? As you mentioned with things like Pachamama, I mean, some people may have already made the connection. I certainly see a connection because I was out there in Rome when that was taking place and, and for the Fatima Center was reporting on it. And it was shortly right after that. I do see a causal connection when the whole Covidian crisis, all this stuff just started blowing up on the world scene. Some people sort of trace it back and they really see that that idol worship within our most sacred basilica there in Rome is what sort of lifted up that dam and let all this yeah. curse and evil into the world. So you're, you're trying to reach out and you're trying to say help, but they're not really helping. Instead, you know, you're saying, okay, help us. We got this Latin mass, for example, that's growing and there's young people coming and there's flourishing. And it's the only thing where you actually see this vibrant life in the church. And then they're shutting that down. Yeah. You know, so how do you know when to speak up and, and what do you do when they're not listening? I, I guess the parents have a double priority for the natural good of their children to make sure they're fed and safe and healthy and educated as well in virtues, but also the supernatural with teaching them to pray, praying the rosary with your children, reading the Bible with your children, catechizing them, but most importantly, getting them to Mass on a Sunday, making sure at the proper time they make their first confession, first Holy Communion, become confirmed. So the sacraments, in regard to the Church, the sacraments are our absolute priority to get to Holy Mass every Sunday. Um, and so when that, you might have to make bigger sacrifices to achieve that. You might have to drive further. People might have to relocate. You know, parents make a huge effort to find the right school for their children. And if now you can't find the right school, you homeschool. And that's a big sacrifice as well. Um, I don't know so much about America, but in England, it's, there's not that many that say, where can we find the right mass for our children? And make that the decision where they buy a house or what, and then what the job will be. And if something comes in the way of that, of your Sunday Mass, then I think it's like war has been declared. It's a battle. Yeah. So for me, in the formation, a lot of the formation is, and depending on the character of the seminarian, trying to teach you that, um, that there's an American bishop who had, he looked in the mirror every morning and said, I'm not, I don't know if I can say all of this, I'm not the Messiah and the people are crazy. <laughs> that was his way of, just keeping himself on track. 
Jesus has saved the world. We're not the Messiah. We don't have to go into fields outside our competence. And so if I'm a priest in an order sent on apostolate, I should just keep my head down and think, what's happening in this apostolate? What's my responsibility here under the pastor? But if I take even that away, then I think it's like a, you realize that ship sinking and you need, we need to have creative solutions. Just everything we can to ensure that Sunday worship. So, keep to the sacraments. Parents, do everything you can to get your children to the sacraments. Now that's a very good um, litmus test which I think can really affect our hearts because yes, as parents we want to make sure that we're going to Mass, our children are, that we're getting them confirmed. I mean, that can also sometimes be very difficult. I think St. Vincent Ferrer has got a prophecy about how those who do not receive confirmation will fall in an apostasy, and as well that it will become very difficult in some of the troubling times to even find the sacrament of confirmation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so with authority, if someone's trying to take that away, you can, I'd say, pretty be sure that that, that can be disregarded. So that means if people say you can't go to SSPX masses or whatever, well, clearly you can if you're not able to get a worthy mass elsewhere whether it, because it's just a Novus Ordo or because in a tradie place they're trying to make you wear a mask or whatever. Um, and if anyone says it's illegal for people to gather right now in any circumstances, well, they're overstepping their brief. It, it can't be illegal to gather to worship God. Um, that authority is being abused. Specifically on this question, there's... Um, even in their own words of Vatican II, a decree Christus Dominus. This is what they claim is the, what a bishop is. They say bishops, as well as being the principal dispensers of the mysteries of God, are the governors, promoters and guardians of the entire liturgical life in the church committed to them. Governors, promoters and guardians. Now, which one of these can we fit Traditionus Custodus into? It is not a guardian. It is not a promoter. Can they claim it's governing? It's not. It's destroying. To govern the liturgy means you can approve the books, the missal used in the liturgy. Um, you can appoint the priests who will offer the sacrifice, which is a massive power to be able to decide this is the missal and these are the men who will offer the sacrifice. You can discipline those priests if they are and not keeping to the rubrics if there's abuses. And that's how you govern the liturgy. But the idea that you can forbid it, this is contradicting even Vatican II. Never mind 2,000 years of tradition. And I'd add another 4,000 years, by the way. The roots of the traditional Mass go way back through the Temple of Solomon, back to Moses' tabernacle in the desert, back to Abraham on Mount Moriah with his son Isaac, back to Adam and Eve in Eden, and even before, even the first sentence of the Bible, we find the roots of the traditional liturgy. It's eternal, of course, because it's eternity wants to enter into time, and we get closest to it through the Mass. It has to exist through all, all creation, through nature and through history. And so to attack that, this is the devil's main aim, to remove that trace of God of eternity from us, and which will fail. But it seems like he's getting close. Because he's got the people who are most responsible for guarding it and promoting it, he's got them to try to eradicate it. Thanks be to God, many bishops are not willing to follow this insanity, but they think they've just got to keep their head down, not make a fuss, 
maybe restricted a little bit, not too much. And we say these are the good bishops because they just do a few restrictions. A good bishop would confront the Pope and tell him, you're in danger of losing your soul and you're already losing many from the church. You are so hurt by this. Other bishops I know, in Vienna there were maybe 16 or 18 priests saying the old mass and the cardinal has said four of them now have permission to say it, the others not. Three are from the fraternity and one in our choice who can keep saying it. And that's devastating for some of those priests who can't operate and it's devastating for faithful who would come to his masses. What's he thinking of? And we're supposed to think, oh, well, at least the fraternity and an oratory survived, so let's be silent and keep our head down. Let's not upset or provoke this wicked cardinal. Um, no, we have to confront them, and the good bishops out there have to confront the Pope. Or this thing will just keep steamrolling until we do. Um, by putting your head down and keeping silent, you're just postponing the problem for someone else. It'll just get worse and worse, and you're hoping someone else down the line will will deal with it. Um, well, and that seems to be contrary to your spirit. So that's something I kind of want to get into. You, you've been hinting at it, some of the things you've been saying, and I certainly see in you, in the way I would describe it, I don't know if you'll describe it that way, and it's something that inspires, is a fighting spirit. Right? I think we need to have this fighting spirit. I mean, we're supposed to be the church militant for a reason. And boy, we seem we've really lost this fighting spirit. You know, some of the different priests that I've talked to, they've been talking more about like the, the problem of effeminacy in men, that we're not fighting anymore, that we're just sort of laying down and, and not, again, losing the fight. Mm-hmm. But obviously you're engaged in the fight. So you know, what do you have to say to that or what drives you in that fight? Is there anything you can impart to others, whether it be brother priest or laity, to help us in that fight? Is that important to fight? Um, it's certainly it's not the first analogy for the life of the church. It is the church is a we're at war, right? Church militant, it's a battle. But there's also the analogies of the a field where you're cultivating and growing, or the shepherd with the sheep, which are far more gentle. Although the shepherd has to fight as well, he's supposed to fight off the wolves, really fight them. And because if you love the sheep, you can't bear to see them attacked, and that's why you fight. It depends how much you love. Um, I, and we have different temperaments, right? There's priests I know who, who I have massive respect for them, and they're not fighters at all, but they are geniuses, um, or they're full of charity, full of humility, and we, we need all of this. But you would hope in a church with 400,000 priests and 5,000 bishops, if just 30% of them were willing to fight, then this would be over. This would be easy. I don't, I don't know where it, where it comes from. Um, I was thinking earlier an analogy where, I guess you know I was in prison in Burma 20-odd years ago, and I was quite confrontational with the guards because it was to challenge them for the cruelty of their regime in Burma against the Burmese people, which is really unbelievable if, if you read the reports or hear from the Burmese what's happening there. And one time, in a bit of a confrontation with the prison guard, we were looking at each other through the bars of my cell window, and they had catapults for shooting the rats, because um, anything anything that moves is also good to cook out there. And these these clay pellets 
which are like almost well, like soft stone, as it were. And he pulled the catapult back through the window. It's aiming it right at my face. And um, you know, this will kill a rat if you hit it. And I think if he hit me at that range, I might not be here. And I thought, what do I do? Do I hide my head around the wall, move away, or flinch? Because if I do, then he has total control over me. Whenever he wants, he just has to lift up the catapult, and I go hide in the corner. So I just kept looking right at him and talking to him about other political prisoners, saying why it's wrong that they're detained. And uh, he couldn't handle it. He started shaking, and then he just moved it off to the side and let go, and I heard it explode on the wall behind me. Um, but he flounced off, and I thought, good. If you, you stand your ground, then they will break. And if you go running at the first sign of aggression, and then you're under their control until you learn to stand your ground. And it might be harder later on. So when I mentioned being kicked out of a couple of apostolates, what the fraternity are not the bad guys, right? They are some of the best priests in the world. I love the fraternity. They're definitely part of the solution. But I was a bit surprised that they pulled me out before a shot had been fired. Whether they're afraid of the archdiocese or the state, these big guns hadn't even moved. They're just afraid that they would get involved. I mean, they, the superiors are responsible for the whole apostolate or for multiple apostolates, whole districts. So they have a lot on their mind, a lot of responsibility, and they don't want to lose that. Why are they, these good priests, why are they afraid that the bishops are going to start closing down whole apostolates? Doesn't that show a sick relationship now in the church where I think most priests... We're afraid of the bishops. We're afraid to say what we think. I'm constantly censoring myself now not to say what I really think of Cardinal Schoenborn. Or, yeah, I kind of said it. <laughs> um, we don't say what we think. And that's so unhealthy. Well, yeah, because if we're really honest about it, the way you're describing it, and I see it, I've said it before, I've heard others say it, it's, it's an abusive relationship. Yeah. It's, it's a spiritually abusive relationship, terribly. And so I guess my question is, how did we get to this point? I was talking to someone just this weekend, interestingly enough, this young man uh, who's a seminarian had done a really big research on modesty because what he saw at this one parish was that the priest that had been there before was allowing, let's just say, people not dressed worthily for the Holy Sacrifice. And then this other priest came in and he was continuing with the status quo, but he seemed to have had a conversion and he seemed to change. And he actually started confronting people like in the parking lot. He'd go up to the husband's and say, you know what, your wife needs to not be wearing that or needs to cover up more. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that starts creating a stir, mm-hmm. right? Some people didn't like it. Some people started calling the bishop, complaining over there. But again, the priest held his ground. Right. And from what I understand now, it transformed the parish. Mm-hmm. Obviously, some people left. They didn't want to change. Maybe they liked humility, whatever it is. But overall, they say just this one change on the modesty is affecting everything. Yeah. The parish is being transformed because Father's taking a stance here. And this young man was saying that in his research, he goes, the church does have standards about modesty. And that connects with Elia Fatima, who talked a lot about modesty and the importance of modesty and how so many souls are falling to help examine modesty. But he actually pointed it back to the 1920s, which, again, Coco Chanel and the revolution, the flappers, you know, all these things started changing at that time. And, of course, Our Lady came right before then. But what he said, and I'd like to get his research, his paper, I didn't get it yet, but he said, 
it's because that's when the bishops decided they weren't going to fight this fight anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I've pointed it out in other places, like with 1973 Roe v. Wade. I mean, if the bishops of the United States had just stood up and said, we're not going to accept abortion, mm-hmm. and as a body they had done that, then, then it couldn't have happened. Yeah. Even today, if the bishops stood up and said, we're not going to stand for this, I think they could still get it. So, so why have we lost the binding spirit, Father? Why are we not doing this? What's going on? An enemy has done this, sure. Also, if the bishops had stood up to this lockdowns, they could never have happened. If the Catholic Church has decided we are not going to lock down our churches, anyone can come here and worship when they have to come and pray, then the globalists could never have got away with locking down businesses and society. And not only that, but what would, the, what would have happened to the church? Because someone brought this up, I don't know if you heard it, somebody said, you know, if we had this one bishop mm-hmm. who said, I'm taking, in the middle of the COVID, when everything was getting locked down, who said, I'm not doing this. In fact, I'm doing a procession. I'm going out, and I'm yeah. processing through my city, yeah. and then my priests come with me, people come with me, and we're going through downtown. They said, you know that? conversions. Exactly. He said, down. what a better way. He said, there would be so many people who've never heard about the Catholic faith, yeah. but they'd see that, and they'd be like, I want to be there. Yeah. I'm marching in that. You yeah. tell me what you've got. I'm yeah. going to go join. I mean, he said, this is like God giving us this golden opportunity for conversions and for a proclamation of the gospel and to start converting this pagan world. But instead, you know, I mean, I never saw one bishop lead a procession this way and sort of in face of these uh, these unjust, tyrannical, government-oppressive measures. Well, we saw the opposite with the churches being closed from Rome out, right, for Easter. It couldn't be worse. But it's been done by an enemy with, with Jesus gives the parable of the field with the tares and the wheat and the, we'll say, how has this happened? And the answer was an enemy has done this, right, planted weeds. And we remember with Judas... At the Last Supper, is that's when the devil entered into him. So we have these warnings in Scripture that we can expect from the bishops, Judas, in relation to the memorial of Calvary, the Mass, and the Holy Eucharist even, that the devil will enter in in order to betray our Lord and his, have his body scourged and mocked and spat upon and crucified which is what the church is experiencing so we we are puzzled how can it be we think we look at the bishops and we think do they believe or not do they have faith or not and it's more and more obvious to more and more people that a lot of bishops they simply cannot have the faith they're into money laundering and covering up child abuse and promoting men who abuse seminarians or whoever. It's it's impossible to do that and have the faith. It's not that, of course, when you have the faith, you can fall into grave sin. You can have a bad, even an addiction. um, And that doesn't mean you don't have the faith. But when you're in that position of responsibility, you must turn yourself in and come clean and say, I'm not fit for this. But if you persist and you're still going up the ladder then they've lost lost the faith. And it's happened by the devil. What I mean is it's just not an accident that you start getting homosexual activity in seminaries, which the formators are either tolerating or involved in, and then these spiritual cripples being selected for promotion in the diocese and then becoming bishops and then drawing in more and more confused men into the seminaries, grooming them in the confessional, and then saying, you know, you should come 
be a priest. Be like this. This is the, the work of an enemy. And when that's happening on a massive scale now, then we're seeing what Judas did and the devil in Judas from the bishops betraying Peter's denial, apostles flee. Right, so so where are we going to find the solution to this? Because a kind of a corresponding question is, obviously part of the solution even for us on a day-to-day basis is we need priests. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if there are words that you could give to inspire others. Why would they choose this vocation when you're seeing this? And And maybe this is really personal to me because I was in the seminary for a while. And I'll be very honest in that I saw a lot of that corruption. I saw a lot of the homosexual activity. I saw the financial malfeasance. I saw that nobody wanted a change and they didn't want to correct it. And if I brought this to the attention of my superiors, I was told that I was the problem. Mm-hmm. And so as a young man, I looked at that scene and I said, I, I can't dedicate my life to this. You know, this will be, I, I'm not, this is, this is just not something I want to live in. And so I got out of the seminary. And I know my story is not unique. I mean, I've talked to plenty of people who've been through similar experiences. So it, it does. It puts us in a conundrum because, you know, I'm one of those who, who said, God's not calling me here. Obviously now I'm married, I have my family. But, but we need priests. Yeah. And yet we've got this grave crisis. Yeah. And we see who's being promoted to be made the bishops. And we see that the priests who are trying to fight and trying to do good and trying to bring us the sacraments are getting suspended, are getting censored, are getting sent to Siberia. So, yeah, I mean, where's the solution? And, and what do we tell young people? Because we desperately need religious. I mean, religious, especially religious, not just the secular priests, but the religious. I mean, they're the powerhouse of the church. Right. If we don't have monks and nuns in our monasteries praying, then we're going to be a very weak and, and dying church, which is what we are. Yeah. Um, so how do we, you know, what, I mean, there's a vocational crisis. Anything we can say to address that? Is that part of the solution? People ask about how do you discern if you have a call or not to religious life or the priesthood. I don't think it's that complicated in that if you're even thinking about it just alone, then you definitely have to just take the next steps, which would be to read some books on the subject or by some saints for their order. If you're interested in religious life, read something from a Carmelite or a Dominican or a Benedictine and see what sticks. Then go visit some convents or monasteries or seminaries if it's just for a pilgrimage or a day or stay for three or four days, whatever. And then after those visits, see if you're still interested. And if so, because then you're much further down the line than when you were just wondering, have I got a vocation or not? No one knows that, well, not many, just by sitting at home asking the question. But you get out there, visit these places, and then start. And if you're there for two, three, four years, it's never wasted time. It's excellent formation, teaches you how to pray, gives you all this time with people serious about the faith with the Mass. But I would say you need to visit three or four places at least. So you, if the something seems wrong with the seminary, get out of there straight away. Or no, you make the complaint and if they're not addressing it, get out. There's so many stories of people who's seminarians who say they're interested in tradition, but they're going to try to go through the Novus Ordo Seminary and when they're a priest, they're going to do it. They're just going to have seven years formation, how to keep your head down and not trust in God. And you will not be strong after seven years of that. It's exceptional that a priest then starts regularly saying the traditional mass. We have to, unless you know nothing about tradition, forget the Novus Ordo. Go to traditional monasteries and convents. That's the answer. We need the traditional mass. Any young person or whoever, wherever they are, thinking, am I called? 
I'd say don't waste your time with the Novus Ordo. It's sterile. It's, it must it's be valid. It's a valid Mass. It's the same Holy Eucharist, same sacrifice from Calvary. From God's point of view, He's not letting us down. But we are so letting God down with that, with the way this liturgy has been mutilated and diluted and turned around to please us instead of pleasing Him. So, if there were more and more people willing to take that step to go and find a traditional seminary or monastery or convent, and maybe you've got to change state or country or continent. Who cares? Yeah, I, I don't understand why some people struggle with this so much. The world's awesome, you know. We have the, the whole of it to, to discover. But that's not the point. The point is it's the cross, it's Calvary. What are you going to hope? Like, why, if you say, God, I'm willing to be crucified, but not there. Uh, I want to be crucified at home. doesn't make sense. You're crucified where he wants you to be. So find a traditional seminary or monastery, visit it. And, because all the, the last seven years, people have been thinking, I'll go to a novice one, and I'll say the traditional mass when I'm ordained. Well, now look what's happened with traditional custodians. You're told, no, you won't say the traditional mass. Um, should have thought of that seven years ago. But, of course, they might come attack tiny places. Sure. Strongly, right. But and they, they, well, they, I think they, they will. will lose. Yeah. They will lose. lose. We'll find ways. The formation has to go on. The ordinations have to go on. And the mass has to go on. Well, one thing you said, Father, definitely, I mean, I'll attest to it. Um, you said, you know, you're going to learn to pray, you're going to learn different things. I mean, I mentioned I was in the seminary and then left, but I'm certainly very grateful for those times. And that's why I do encourage others, as you say, just check it out. Give God a chance because... You know, people who know me and maybe knew me before and knew me after would definitely attest to the fact that that made me a better person. Hmm. You know, I think it's made me a better, for example, father and husband that I was in the seminary and I got certain formation there that was really good for me. And so others are benefiting from it. So I, I think it can help. Getting, getting here to the message of Fatima, there is a quote I wanted to give you that's, that's colored some of what we're talking about right now and maybe if you just comment on it or what you think. This comes from the final public interview that Sister Lucia was able to give. So this is December 26, 1957, to Father Lucien Fuentes. And I am convinced that at that time, Sister Lucia either had just a very strong intuition, or maybe our Blessed Mother had already told her that the third sequel was not going to be revealed in 1960, that, that she was going to be silenced. She was going to have to suffer all this. And so in this last interview, she's trying to say everything she sort of can say, and maybe even hinting a lot of the contents of the third secret. But one of the things Sister Lucia said there, talking to the priest, she said, Father... We should not wait for an appeal to the world to come from Rome on the part of the Holy Father to do penance. Nor should we wait for the call to penance to come from our bishops and our diocese, nor from the religious consecrations. No, our Lord has already very often offered us these means, and the world has not paid attention. That is why now it is necessary for each one of us to begin to reform himself spiritually. Each person must not only save his own soul, but also help to save all the souls that God has placed in our path. And I mean, I love that quote. It's so striking to me because I think right now in 2022, it sort of really makes sense. It resonates. It, it wouldn't take a prophet to say this right now. Mm -hmm. But in 1957, she was saying this. Yeah. And I wonder, where does she get the clairvoyance? Where does she get the understanding to already see that? I mean, you read books and things and it's like, you know, people think things were great in the 50s and the Catholic Church is strong and schools and hospitals and all these things are going. Uh, that the Catholic has all these mission, Catholic Church missions apostles, but she still saw this, yeah. and she made this call back in 1957. And I, I mean, maybe they thought, you know, what's she talking about? Well, now it makes sense. Yeah. Uh, so comments on maybe that because it seems like that's one of the themes here that you and I are talking about. 
Yeah, she must be very in tune with heaven, I think, I've received some inspiration there. But uh, the Pastor Twelfth had the Holy Week changed in 1951-55. It's the beginning of the devastation of the Roman liturgy, 1955. And there had been a movement pushing for that for at least uh, 25 years before. Um, so there must have been signs that the church was unhealthy. Um, but this is, goes way beyond that, I think, in that she realizes we can't be relying on bishops or Rome. And the, the motivation for, um, is, did it, was it conversion, she said that at the end of the quote, conversion of sinners or... Right, so she well, says, it's necessary for each one of us to begin to reform himself spiritually. You must not only save your own soul, each person, but also help save the souls that God's placed yeah. in your path. Right, so so many of these messages of Fatima about the conversion of poor sinners and the hope that we can have. And this will be part of, the, as well, Our Lady's victory in that God will, through her and through us who have this hope, reach so many people everybody basically who doesn't actively exclude God because in the end I think it will be kind of black and white you're either against him or for him just to be open to want God's mercy to ask him for help he will do it he can bring that soul to heaven they might have a long time in purgatory but it's still worth it but the, the motivation for us then it's going to be phenomenal the conversions at the end and the, the people who seem so so far away and a lot of us in, in our families you have this situation um, but it's for the love of the family member that people realize they, they have to be faithful every day to their faith for the sake of loved ones who, who aren't. It will be successful because God won't be outdone by our trust in him. With the, the bishops though, if it was heaven advising of what was to come, you know in 1968 they changed the right for the consecration of a bishop. And in 1947, Pius XII put in a document, um, Sacramentum Ordinis, what is the form and matter of the deacon's ordination, the priest and the bishop's consecration. He spelt it out, identifying the form and even saying what were the two essential elements in the form. And this got changed just 20 years later. In a way, the form, some genius academics in Rome thought they would take part of a prayer from Hippolytus of Rome from the 3rd century and they didn't even take the full thing and insert it into a fairly butchered Latin rite of the Episcopal consecration it's basically, it's like cloning where you take the DNA out of one creature and insert it into the cell of another species given what the bishops have allowed to happen to seminarians and children um, and homeless people and immigrants. You know why they're so supportive of the immigrants? A, a lot of it's, they are bringing people in to abuse. Trafficking. Yeah. Yeah, it's like yeah. child trafficking, human yeah. trafficking. You yeah. know, even... Uh, Disgust. Um, so the reason they wanted to change the right for the consecration, they said... The bishop is prophet, priest, and king. So is every priest, so is every baptized person in a sense. But they wanted less emphasis on the bishop's role of sanctifier and more on his role as governor. They thought the present right, the traditional right, doesn't put enough emphasis on the priest as the governor, as the king 
of his territory, his diocese. The bishop. Yeah, and too much emphasis on sanctification. So they downplayed that and upplayed the governor. And so maybe God has given the church exactly what she asked him for. We want a bunch of administrators and governors in our bishops, and we're no longer bothered about holiness, neither in them nor in what they give to the flock through the service. Right, because the liturgical prayer, our, our faith teaches us, is efficacious. We, yeah. we, it brings about what we're praying for. Yeah. So if we're de-emphasizing the sanctifying role of the bishop in his ordination, then that's going to happen in our lives and in our world and in our diocese. Absolutely. And then this governance is, is sort of being exalted into this more yeah. like, you know, really Marxist, tyrannical yeah. overreach where, you know, they're even to the point where you have unjust suspensions and, you know, we're going to do this and because it's merely my whim. Yeah. And so it's it's all out of, out, out of uh, balance. Traditional right, the priest, the candidate was asked, will you exhibit in all things fidelity, submission, obedience according to canonical authority? So it's not just the tyrannical arbitrary will of the bishop to do what he likes against canon law. As law is used as a weapon in Burma, it's now being used also in the church. Disregarded, law is meaningless when it's for the good. And the old preface mentions Moses and Aaron. Aaron is clearly the figure of the high priest. He's the model for the bishop. And all those vestments that Aaron put on are more glorious in a sense in what the Catholic bishops traditionally would, how they would vest. But it's all the graces and virtues that they put on for their role as high priest. And they, they've changed that, moved Aaron out of it, which I just can't believe, because he's an awesome man, Aaron, as a high priest. Incredible. God picked him to be the first in the prefiguration of the high priesthood. And they changed it to Abraham from the beginning. This is the new rite. It says, from the beginning, you chose the descendants of Abraham to be your holy nation. What is this to do with a bishop or the high priest? I love Abraham to pieces, but he's like the figure, the principle for the whole people, not for that role as bishop, which is Aaron, the high priest, who offers the sacrifice, who consecrates, who sanctifies. It's egalitarianism. Yeah. It's, it's flattening it yeah. all down, destroying Absolutely. the hierarchy, and, and it's this yeah. egalitarianism. And, I, and it's the beginning of that wanting to please the Jews and the Muslims in the whole world instead of pleasing God. Because you say Abraham and all his descendants, right. yeah, they're just trying to reach everyone. And we're letting go the proper role of the bishop, which is the sanctification is way more. Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek, who was high priest, or the, the, the priest in a whole other order, long before Aaron. So how can Abraham be the image that we go to if we want to understand what a bishop is? And the form of the consecration mentions being the candidate soul being dressed in all these glories and graces, which you can only understand if you read about Aaron and his vestments. Um, so basically, they butchered the prayer in 968, the right for the consecration of a bishop. No wonder we have the bishops that we have now. Absolutely no wonder. It makes complete sense. And if someone says, oh, you are... You're a set of accountants or whatever, if you think, if you think that. I, I can't think of a better explanation of the mess that we're in than the changing of the liturgy in the 50s and 60s and 70s and the divine office in the 70s. We savaged it. It's self-harm on a scale never seen. 
the self-harm by the church. Well, and, and, and that's connected to the message of Fatima, I believe, in the third seeker, right? And even uh, Eugenio Pacelli, before he became Pius XII, you know, he's Secretary of State uh, under Pius XI, and he talks about, I am worried about Sister Lucia's you know, admonition about the suicide of altering the faith in mm-hmm. our liturgy, in our churches, in our sacraments. So he already knew something about the message of Fatima, where he was very worried that our Blessed Mother was saying, do not change mm-hmm. the liturgy, do not change the sacraments, because obviously ordinations are part of the liturgy. You know, right. It's not just Mass. So, so that does connect us here, and, and we are definitely running out of time, which is rough, because I want to talk to you about laws and weapon. You said that was great. So we might keep this going. We'll, we will have the Q&A in, in just a bit. But I, I can't close without just, you were talking a bit earlier just about all the conversion that needs to come about. And I do want to mention, for people to understand this, that one of the great means that God will use is obviously Our Lady's Immaculate Heart, but he specifically says to Sister Lucia that Russia has been entrusted to her. And that, that she's going to save Russia. And this is one of the reasons why Russia has to be consecrated to her, because then she's going to bring about Russia's conversion. Mm-hmm. So that en masse, you know, the Russian people are coming into the one holy Catholic, apostolic, and Roman church, you know, outside of which there's no salvation. And then use, she'll use Russia as sort of her privileged instrument in a way we know not now. It's, it's a mysterious way. But she's going to use it to sort of distribute all these graces to the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and that's what this consecration is supposed to bring. It's supposed to say Russia belongs to Our Lady, to her Immaculate Heart. And then she gets to pour all these graces out onto the world, which God has given to her. She's mediatrix of all graces. And then, you know, obviously Russia benefits from it, but so does everyone else. Just like we could say, you know, the Jews in the Old Testament, the Hebrew people were selected. God poured all this grace to them, culminating in the incarnate word of God, who then gives us all the grace that, you know, everyone else can profit by. So we have this parallel. I mean, God works this way. And God wants Russia consecrated so that people will see this. He says, because we still see in the 1930s, asked him, can't you convert Russia without this consecration? And our Lord said, no, because the world needs to know that it happened through Our Lady's intercession, because I want the world to honor her and put her devotion to the Immaculate Heart next to my devotion to the Sacred Heart. So there's going to have to be a causal relationship for us to see, and that's temporal, because we're, we're beings trapped in time, so there's going to have to be a temporal connection between the consecration that the Pope does and then this flood of grace that Our Lady is pouring into the world for the conversion of Russia. Now it's affecting many others. You know, again, that's my take on it, because again, I'm leading up to just the one thing I wanted to ask you about here is this big event that just took place recently in the Vatican, where Francis had on March 25th a a consecration of some sort. I, I guess the human race and our future expectations and all the church and all the nations and everybody got consecrated. And the special mention of Russia and the Ukraine. Um, so I don't know if you have any thoughts on that or if what I've sort of said makes sense to you or, or you disagree with it or, or your take on anything like this, Father. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And um, sorry if I was losing the piece you mentioned on the last question, but <laughs> as soon as you talk about Fatima then, it comes back. Um, some of us were talking earlier about the messages of Fatima. You can read them again and again and again, and you never get tired of it. It's like like the gospel. Um, whereas a fake apparition, you, it just switches you off. So the prayer, if that's what it was, that was written for this event recently, I could only read it once, and I had to struggle to get through it. It's this humanistic hand-wringing, apologizing for all these things we've apparently done wrong. And there was no... I mean, if you're going to apologize to Our Lady or to God, how about apologizing for not making the consecration for so many decades? That would, and I think, I said it didn't mention Fatima. So what is this? There has to be absolute clarity. And other commentators have said, I, I don't know if it's worked or not, we're, we're going to see. But some commentators have said, oh, God's not concerned whether you mention the whole world or mention another country or another country, just as long as you have Russia in there. 
why shouldn't God be concerned? Why shouldn't we just follow in all simplicity just exactly what Our Lady asked for? And let there be a consecration of Russia to her Immaculate Heart by the Pope with all the bishops of the world. Um, just that. Just simple. And then we will see such a dramatic change that no one will be able to doubt where it's come from. And that is exactly the point, I think. And, and all of us, even if we believe and have faith, we'll still be amazed and we'll still be overjoyed because it will ha- happen so clearly. And incidentally, God never writes off any soul. There's always something there they can bring to his plan. The Russian bishops are certainly valid bishops, even if they're in schism. It might be for 50 years or 100 years that bad. Who are we to say to God there can't be this period of darkness in history? Given what we've done to him, I mean with the self-harm of the church. So, if Russia were to rescue the whole church, and it's the biggest possible honor to pay to a country, I can't understand why in the 80s they were worried Russia would be offended if you consecrate them. Ours are pretext. It's like, there's no bigger compliment. And Russia's, uh, for a thousand years, they've had this awesome devotion to Our Lady. Yeah, Not excusing schism, but everybody knows it, with all the icons and the hymns. So they're the perfect choice to honor Our Lady through whatever they bring to the world. And you've got to love Russian people as well. They're awesome people. So, um, Well, no, that's good, Father. Um, Let's go ahead and uh, we'll take just a little break and then we'll gather the questions that the crowd has had for us and and we'll go out of here in just a few minutes. But if at least for right now, you'll you'll give us your blessing. Sure. Benedictio de Omnipotentis, Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti, Descendit Supervost et Maniat Semper. Amen. This presentation has been brought to you by the Fatima Center. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. For more resources regarding the Catholic faith and the message of Fatima, And to support this vital apostolate with a donation, please visit our website, Fatima.org, or call us at 1-800-263-8160. So many need to hear the message Our Lady brought the world at Fatima, of devotion to her Immaculate Heart, the communion of reparation on first Saturdays, daily prayer of the rosary, to cease offending God, of penance and prayer, prayer for the Pope, and the necessity of Russia's consecration to her Immaculate Heart. For the glory of God, the honor of Our Lady, and the salvation of many souls, please share the Fatima message with everyone you know, and may Our Lady reward you. Our Lady of Fatima, pray for us.